Uh, everyone, if you don't know this guy here, his name is Pete Bergmeier. He's a really nice guy, so smile at him, all Check right? So, and uh, Pete, just as we're unpacking this theme, because there's a lot of images that just came up then and probably provoked us to consider things that we weren't thinking about just even a, a minute ago. And um, this idea of this month being spread out, where you are, this city, the marginalised, outer limits, it strikes me that... Um, There's one group in Australia that's been marginalised for some time and that kind of 90-second promo thing just kind of cracked it open for us. Um, So could you help us as we're kind of just wanting to drop the pebble in the ocean today and start a ripple that we're going to unpack more things next year. Um, So this is a taster today. Could you just tell us, what is Australians Together? What's your involvement in it? And and you did that, that promo thing. You put it together. Correct. Yes. Tell us about that. So, I think there were 17 questions. Yeah, there, I did. I just so fired I just them all off. Start with. Yeah. Uh, firstly, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on any, all things Aboriginal, um, but I've been learning some things. Um, so, if you're an Aboriginal uh, or Indigenous person here today, um, good on you. Thanks for being here, and I'm not talking on behalf of you. Um, I've, I've started with an organisation called Australians Together about four or five years ago, and. Um, we started off going, you talk to an everyday person down the street um, about our Indigenous heritage and people intrinsically know there's just something not right. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is people don't really know what to do about it if they, you know, if they acknowledge there's something not right. So uh, Australians Together is about exploring this idea of education and awareness of our Indigenous history and how it affects us today. You work with a group called Concilia and they fund all of this and for you they started off with a question or really a statement about the state of play here in Australia, um, this whole idea of a wound. Yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess that's a, a way of um, describing that it's something not right here, um, it, that there's a wound in the spirit of, of our nation and, th- and that sort of captures the essence of our, our starting point. And that, that woundedness, if you stick that slide up, we can see this explains uh, pretty much what people sense, that there's something not right. Fifteen-year-olds, 53 times more likely to go to be in jail than a non-Indigenous 15-year-old. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. So there you go. Life expectancy, 10 years less on average. Suicide rate, six times higher. Unemployment. I mean, they're striking kind of stats there, mate. Um, I think for many people like myself, we'd go, I don't know an Indigenous person. I probably actually have, have bumped into and met a handful um, on our trip around Australia, I, I met um, Bessie, who's up there in Kakadu, and she let me fish in a waterhole where there was a six-metre-long croc they found uh, a little bit later. I didn't see it along the way. And, and I've probably met one or two Indigenous elders around in Melbourne. Um, Kutcher, who comes and sometimes speaks here at uh, uh, when they have Reconciliation Week. Um, but most of us, I don't think we know an Indigenous person and we kind of feel like we actually didn't perpetrate a lot of the stuff that happened a long time ago. So what's the value in it for us? Why should we even think about this thing? Yeah, look, for me, it's, it's that we're all, we're all connected. We're all, we're all part of a... We all have a shared economy. I mean, millions and millions are spent on trying to um, grapple with these things up here. And that affects all of us. Um, the other thing is we're, we're all on the same bit of dirt. We're all, we're all sharing the same piece of land. Um, and, and like it or not, our, our homes are actually built on, on land that once wasn't owned. It was taken care of and, and the custodians looked after it. And, and the, the challenges around um, historical ownership of land, um, we actually end up with a bit of a complex situation it's very hard to uh, to grapple with. So my answer is we're all connected. Okay. Um, you've been doing this for how many years now? A year and a half, yeah, two years? Yeah. Five years. Yeah. yeah. 
five years, what have you learnt? What's impacted you? What's changed in you? Because you've travelled around Australia interviewing Indigenous elders, Indigenous people from all different walks of life. Um, what's changed in you? What have you learnt? Look, I, I think early on I, I expected um, lots and lots of angry Aboriginal people, to be honest. But what I found was a whole bunch of people that say, if you want to come and sit down and have a talk, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. Once they suss out who you are and if, if you're just trying to rip them off or trying to get stuff and write a thesis, you get past that and, and you just share who you are and what you're doing. The Aboriginal people I've, I've met are amazingly gracious. I, I was chatting with a guy in Melbourne and I said, mate, am I actually welcome? On this, on this land? Like, strange question, but I felt like I had to ask it. And he goes, yeah, absolutely. There's conditions around things traditionally that if you look after the land, you're welcome. You can come and stay here, no worries. So this, this whole idea of relationship, our, our family have connected with a family up in the Gold Coast and, um, they live in a, a, a unit near the beach. They're not strange. They're not out in the middle of nowhere in a, Bark huts and stuff. They're an urban Aboriginal family. Yet the cultural differences are huge. And they've been teaching us about family, about community, and about what it's like to uh, look after people when when you go onto their, their country. So how has, you've, and you've touched on some of these, how has your interaction with Indigenous folk actually started to change the way you viewed your own family or other people or your own environment because it's been doing some stuff over the last five years yeah absolutely i guess the the, the way you, you view family um where families are funny things aren't they you, uh, you I, I guess the default is to uh, build high fences and keep people out and uh and um so the family thing is 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 about breaking down those fences and valuing what you do have, and, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, you've got a clip that you want to show us because you've actually done interviews with people. Um, uh, what's this clip about, and who's this person? Yeah, I, I guess the other thing that's really impacted me is the the, the level of brokenness in communities, in uh, in people's lives. You you, you interact with an, an Aboriginal person, and. Uh, it doesn't take much, even just the, the, the comment, where, where are you from? Once they say where they're from, that, that's like a little key to a whole range of, uh, of, of brokenness that, that perhaps hasn't been dealt with really well. Um, I interviewed a, uh, Arnie Iris, who's, uh, so wonderful, um, broke my heart doing the interview, uh, cut together, a, um, a little clip about what she was talking about and, uh, Keep a look out for how the past influences our perceptions today. So I'll run that now. My family's from Sherberg. Um, I was born there. Mum and Dad uh, were taken away from their homeland onto Sherbeck, put on the reserve there at Sherbeck. We had everything that an ordinary big family would have in those days, self-supporting, had a little garden and had some fruit trees. And my mum and dad was very particular about that. Even though it was tough in those days, our family um, grew up well-balanced. But for mum, for uh, a superintendent to come down there and say to her, you've got two days to pack up. We have a house for you up in the community. It was the middle of the week and I was only 12 and I was, happened to be sitting with her on the stairs when the guy came and told her that. And she said, I don't think I could go until my husband Huey comes home and he said sorry he said the truck is coming down in two days time 
I couldn't imagine what my father felt coming home to an empty house that was his home. That's what they used to do. And that's what they did to us as a family. I just wonder just what it would be like if a white family, any white family, would uh, feel if a man worked so hard and came home and found an empty house with no family there and just expected to accept it because you're under the act of the Queensland government. It affected my dad very, very much so that uh, at one stage um, he um, had a drinking problem. The same man came and tried to talk to him and because my dad was a forestry worker, he owned a rifle and he said to that same man, if you can't walk into my yard here now, I'm going to shoot you. Because he said that, they came up and got him in the paddy wagon, took him off, walked him up. A man who worked in the um, forestry work for so many, many years, out in the open spaces, it sent him crazy. And that's what's happened in my head. So this is your interview that you did with Arnie Iris. Yep. What did, when you hear these stories and you call yourself a follower of Jesus and that connection between should we be, should I be responsible, what, kind of what, what percolates through you, Pete? Yeah. God, God's concerned about justice, about setting things right. And as a, as a follower of Jesus, I get concerned about those things too. And I, I want to go and say sorry to Arnie Iris, but that's not what Arnie Iris wants or needs, and and it's not really my my place to do that. So so I've been wrestling with what is my place as a follower of Jesus, living in Australia, when when stories like this everywhere, everywhere, and you know if 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 I'm if I'm just going to say. To people like Arnie Iris, Jesus will make it all better and then leave them alone. Well, I'm not sure that's going to be helpful either. So it, it, it's very complex. It's very complex. But, but I think giving um, Arnie Iris' story uh, uh, the time of day is a fantastic place to start. Um, we're just really as I said, dropping a little stone in the pond because we want to have a conversation. If we're going to really come at this, I think, as a group of people at NCR, if we're really going to understand, we have to kind of enter into the conversation, enter into the understanding, and and you've put together a whole series of um, kind of small group, home group discussions that we can have next year that's going to help facilitate some of this. I found a fantastic presenter, by the way, to um, help me with that. Who was that? Okay. <laughs> a professional. Uh, so Search the country far and wide. I've been able to work with Pete, or he invited me in to come and do something. So that's been fun along the way to actually be part of the project in some very, very small way. Um, Peter, what's this got to do with our theme about spread out? Um, you know, Jesus said, I want you to go spread out and actually let people know about this good news stuff. Um, it hasn't always been good news, though, for Arnie Iris's where... Church and state have kind of collided with her experience and others that you've. Yeah, I think the, the whole spreading out thing was done uh, was done quite well back in the 1400s. The um, the Pope of the time actually issued a papal edict saying, "Go out and colonise all the natives, and if they don't agree, just shoot them." So the colonisers came to Australia with this idea of. Terra nullius that the land didn't belong to anyone. And the, the Pope said, off you go. This is church business. So spreading out was done pretty well back in the uh, late 1700s. From their perspective. From their perspective, yep. yes. And so, so a lot of Aboriginal people today 
they're quite aware of what the gospel is because they've been missionized, putting rounded up and made to go to church. Um, so the whole spreading out thing's been done in one particular way. But but we kind of we all know that's not quite right. On the other hand, too, there's also been good stories Absolutely. where there's been people who have been on the same mission, say, and they've gone and said, "I've had a really positive experience." Yeah. So I guess I guess taking the legalistic way of spreading out and making disciples results in colonization, but taking an experience of Jesus, propelled by the Holy Spirit, taking that approach in spreading out. There's a guy, uh, John Green, a white fella missionary who. Had a, had a wonderful heart for the um, Wurundjeri mob around here and actually cared really well uh, for uh, a lot of the Wurundjeri out in uh, Corondack near Hillsville there. Um, so there's, there are really good examples of uh, how spreading out was done, um, but, but they're few and far between. Yeah. So as we bring this part to, you've got one more clip that you want to show us. What has this, what, why should we invest our time at NCR into unpacking the whole concept of Australians together and, and that there being a, a, that, that premise, a wound in the spirit of our nation? Why should we? That's a big question. <laughs> I, th- I think it's got to do with working out who we are as Australians, to be honest, to, to what it means to live here in, in Australia with this past that hasn't been dealt with yet. And it's uh, the government really struggling to deal with it. Um, relationally, it's hard to deal with, uh, and, and it's very complex. So I, th- I think it matters. It matters as, as people living on this land, yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversations next year, and I hope folk here will be part of that too um, as we kind of unpack it. But... Um, introduce this, this last section yeah, this, for us. This um, last little clip is from my mate uh, Richard, who, uh, who ties in this, this idea of ends of the earth and, and our backyard uh, and perhaps suggests that, um, yeah, that the ends of the earth is kind of perhaps a little bit easier to compartmentalise because we can go and do a missions trip, come home and we don't have to see anything again, but... Um, perhaps our own backyard is a little harder to deal with. So, watch this one. It's a lot easier actually to look beyond our shores um, to deal with the stuff in your own backyard. That's another question. To take someone's by the hand and saying, okay, well, I don't know where this is going to end, but I'm willing to, to take a risk, willing to take a risk and, and, and to walk some ways with, with the other person. The Spirit of God brings healing in a way that's so profound within the midst of not only myself but for the other that you, you, get, a, you get a taste of what the kingdom can be like promise of having um, God's kingdom come here and reign with us here as it is in heaven. So here on earth, my home for an Australia, where we can see people from different backgrounds come together to be one with another in unity and to be united in the spirit of grace. When we talk about Australians together though, I think we approach it with an us and them mentality in terms of um, the people, the first peoples, and the people who then came um, and um, um, with the first fleet. And unfortunately for us, that builds barriers. Australians together within the life of the church can actually lead the way in terms of how wider Australia can actually engage. There's a sense in which we can actually model what Australians together might look like. That's quite challenging, but at the same time, um, it's, I think it's part of us answering God's call upon our lives here in this place. 
Australians together is about dealing with the stuff that's in our backyard. However long the grass is or however unmowed it might feel or however broken the fences, our backyard needs tending to. That's what Australians together for me is about. So I'm going to do a song now. It's um, written by a bloke called uh, Shane Howard. Um, he's a white fella who's done some wrestling with what it means to be a, a non-Indigenous person living here in Australia. He grew up in Warrnambool, this uh, Shane Howard fella, and uh, started a band called Goanna Band. And he went off to uh, Uluru and had an aha experience about all this stuff, and then that's where he wrote the, uh, wrote the song called Solid Rock in 1982. Uh, this song I'm going to sing is uh, called Murray Time, M-U-R-R-I. So when I'm singing Murray, that's, that's the word. And, and it's a word used to describe the Aboriginal mob up in Queensland, just a bit like um, you have the Koori mob here or the Noongar mob over in WA. And the song looks back to a, an idyllic time in the past and questions our future together. It's a bit of a folksy, poetic song and uh, resonates really well with uh, a lot of the mob up in Queensland. So here we go. the lake 
Thanks, Pete. Would you put your hands together for Pete? And of course, all the other people that were playing as well in the band too. It's good to be together this morning. Um, I just, Dan might have me just down a fraction, that'd be great. Hey, um, just uh, good to be together, some sunny days, all of those things, yeah. Just give us a smile, now we're there. There's some heavy things to think about there this morning, isn't it? But I'm kind of really looking forward to actually entering into a bit of a journey and a conversation. And uh, I reckon we're gifted around the life of new community here with, with folk who are actually experts. Or, no, people would hate that, uh, to be called an expert, but someone who's diving in and can actually inform us about things that are actually relevant and uh, practical and and meaningful for our world at the same time. So that's actually really, really good. Looking forward to that next year. Four things. I just want to say very quickly, first one, baptism next week. Do you know there's someone who's getting dunked in the water? For a follower of Jesus, getting dunked in the water and coming out again is like this this amazing event that um, it's nothing special about the water itself, but it marks something really significant. So if you're kind of thinking, I don't know this guy called Lucas Rutherford. I don't need to be there at that. I, I want to check you right at that moment and say, parents, um, singles, doubles, anyone, you need to come along next Sunday from 12.30 to 1.30 because this is actually a marking the moment that we do as a community thing. And we just identified with Indigenous people, they value community more than individualised. And it would be really Western thing next week to kind of go, I don't know, Lucas, I'm just going to do my own thing. And that would actually be an anti-Jesus thing, all right? So if you're someone who actually wants to connect in and actually want to kind of do the, the follow bit and see how it kind of works, then come along. And if you're new and you're checking out God here, today. Now, why don't you come as well? Because we're going to have the barbecue down there. So you can actually, um, don't have to bring your own food. We can even provide it for you. And then at 1.30, we're going to encounter that together. Second thing, I sent out a letter this week just to inform us about the life in your community. If you didn't get that one, you can get it there at the letterbox or on the way out in the table in the foyer. This Thursday, we're having a discussion at 8 o'clock here to talk about some of the transitional things we've been doing on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to be part of that, come along 8 o'clock here on Thursday, the very last thing I want to say before I launch into some conversation about this whole area is simply this, is that if you're a cyclist around here, would you be really careful? Do you know that Stu Conkey, our children's worker, got doored twice in a week and a half? So much so that he actually got doored and he's actually made it here today. So if you see him, don't give him a hug. Don't make him laugh because he had a broken rib and a punctured lung. So just for anyone out there in the, the cycling kind of world, or if you open a car door, could you just check both ways because it's so so, so very easy along the way. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to jump into some things here this morning. God, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to ask that you might speak to us in the time that we have available. You already have been and I ask that you might crack open in us something that's really profound and good and worthwhile when it comes to who you are and what your agenda and your plan is for our lives and this world's life that you love. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to follow with us this morning, I would encourage you to, uh, if you've got a Bible here or if you've got a, a phone, an iOS device, would you look up Luke chapter 10 and just hold it there for a moment because you can actually follow with us and unpack some of the most powerful, insightful things that Jesus shares when it comes to otherness, other people, the way we view outsiders, insiders, the whole shebang. And uh, as I've been thinking about this, Luke chapter 10, when this, this story, this powerful story in the Bible, 
What I discovered along the way is that it unearths some prejudices in the way in which I view and see other people outside of my spheres and happens all too naturally and too easily. 20 years ago when I was at university, maybe a little bit longer, I remember having a... uh, a time with friends in the city where we sat down by some tables and we ordered some pizza. There was a homeless man who walked on by and he stopped and he was hungry. So he started to engage us in conversation, really shame us into sharing. So he said, oh, actually, I, I, I'm a homeless person. You, you wouldn't give me anything to eat. I mean, you've got a whole pizza. Look at all the slices that you've got. And, and you're probably going to eat them all, but you wouldn't sit with someone like me. And I know all of the other friends that I was sitting with kind of feeling really awkward at this moment. So they kind of turned their backs, you know, to try to ignore the situation. But for me, I kind of felt this kind of, I need to do something here. I need to do something. I don't, what do I do? I don't know. And then he, it continued on and on until in the end, I kind of went, okay, well, why don't you just come and sit down with me? And I thought it'd be really rude for me to hop up and walk away. Here's the piece of pizza and walk away. So I stayed there. But I wasn't prepared for the smell. And I wasn't prepared for when he started eating all of the food, started to kind of come out again as he was kind of digesting at the same time. It was this really, really awkward kind of moment. But I wanted to do the kind of the right thing. But at the same time, all my friends had vacated by that time. And there I was eating pizza with this homeless person that I kind of feel shamed into doing so. My perceptions were kind of changing. Jump ahead of time. It was about five, six years ago now. I was in North India. And in North India, I was working with and, and teaching some people who become followers of Jesus from a Hindu background. And in that Hindu background, the, the Northern Indians, they were kind of learning about what it meant to follow Jesus. I said, could you tell me, this is all translated in Hindi, what is the good news? And they shot their hands up and they said, Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. I said, that, that's a good answer. I'm not sure if Jesus would frame it in that way, but it's not wrong. Um, but I think he came to do far more than that just whilst people are living here on earth. And so I said, would you stand up one by one and tell me what difference has Jesus made in your life? And over half of the group said, someone prayed for me and I got healed. That's what attracted me to Jesus. But then there was one Nepalese young man. I didn't even know he was Nepalese. He stuck his hand up as we're unpacking what the good news of Jesus is all about and the way in which he views the worlds and people. And he said, it means that Jesus thinks that us Nepalese are just as important as the Indians. And I thought, wow, I wonder what kind of conversation is going on even amongst a a Christian, a Jesus-following community in that space for him to actually stick his hand up and say that. Conversation, let's jump forward, only just three, four years ago. I was with a lady in a cafe. She sat down and she said, I feel like a fraud talking with you today. I said, why is that? She said, because I don't believe in this God stuff. And I know you do. You should be spending your time talking with people who believe this God stuff. <laughs> I said, you have no idea how much I love having this conversation right here. She said, well, then tell me this. Why do people who follow Jesus call themselves Christians think that they're the only ones that can do good? I said, tell me more. She said, well, I have a friend and her car broke down. So she called her mother. She said, I don't know why she called her mother. She called her mother and she said, my car's broke down. And the mother called back and said, I want you to go to this mechanic because this mechanic is a Christian, he won't rip you off. And my friend got so mad at that moment at her mother because she said, what are you saying about all the other mechanics out there? All the ones that don't follow Jesus, they're going to rip you off? Wow. I know what the mum was trying to say. Should be some inherent things that are better. What she's also saying about all the others out there. It's so easy for us to divide inside, outside, otherwards to ourselves, isn't it? You know, one of the biggest fears that people have when they come into a church setting, the biggest fear, do you know what it is? Not that you'd be put on the spot. That's there. That's high as well. That's why we give you chocolate as well. However, it's being judged. I'll walk in and someone will judge me. They'll look at me, give me the up and down, and they'll go, oh, they're also all fine on the inside, and I'm on the outside, and now I'm going to actually be judged. You know, that's... We do it without even thinking all the time. One of the greatest human things that we do whenever we walk into any sphere of our lives is that we judge and we judge so easily. Yeah, don't we? Isn't that true? It's just like breathing oxygen. We don't even know it. So what we have is we have in our culture, we have stereotypes. Stereotypes are just culturally characterizations of people or people groups. So who who are the ones that drive poorly in our culture? Who, Who are the ones that... Uh, which skin can we trust as being more trustworthy or otherwise? Hmm? Or what about intellectual capacity based on hair color? 
Just saying. You know, along the way, what happens with our stereotypes is that become inbuilt biases against people. They become prejudiced, maybe on the basis of an encounter with someone. But so easily, these inbuilt stereotypes can become inbuilt prejudices in which you judge the whole based on one. Isn't that so true? We judge the whole based on one, and therefore we delineate who's on the inside, who's on the outside, accordingly. And we do it without even thinking sometimes. And so that's why, here we go. We're going to jump into a part of the Bible that just launches into this whole idea. And it starts with a question. One day, an expert in religious law, that is a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This question wasn't altogether out of the question in that day and age, in that culture in first century. It was a question that would have been asked. But let's back it up for a moment because a person who was a rabbi, and Jesus was identified as a rabbi, when you had someone who stood up, it was usually out of respect for the rabbi. This religious lawyer, who was an expert in understanding law and Torah and how to apply it, stood up not to respect but to test Jesus. And he asked him this question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? According to a Jewish person, the world was broken up into two time slots. There was the present age and the future age. The present age looked like this. The Romans were in charge. The people of God were no longer on the top of the pile. They're on the bottom. And one day the prophets had said that God would come and bring his reign to earth. That is in the future age. So he's asking a question, God, what must I do? Sorry, Jesus, what must I do as a follower of Torah, as a legal expert, to make sure that I enter into the age to come when God would actually bring his reign and rule that the, the, the people of God, the covenant people of Jewish, would be on the top of the pile. The nations would come to the people of God and, and they would be saved through that. They would experience God's justice and mercy and kindness through that people. How would I make it into that future age? And so Jesus understanding that he, this expert lawyer wanted to actually trick him in what he said, responded by this. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? A perfectly good question for a lawyer type of person at the time because they had studied the five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have studied uh, not only just the Ten Commandments, these are all of the prophets and these are the Psalms and this is the whole body of literature. And, and Jesus asks him, how do you read it? Well, the man replied with these words, common words for the time. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart or your soul or your strength and all your mind. And then he adds on and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting two parts from the Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all of your mind. He's quoting the Shema. This is the most common prayer that, that ancient Israelites would have been wrapped around in their community life, and it's still present today. The Shema is, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is one. The Lord is God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. They recite that today, Orthodox Jews. And then he takes on something from Leviticus 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't revolutionary probably at the time. This has been spoken by other rabbis. So Jesus says this. Right, do this, and you'll live. Enter into the age to come. But then the man responds like this. Jesus, so I jumped to there. Uh, what does the law of Moses say? You must. Ah, oh, I've left one one thing out here, and I'll, I'll just pack it in here. And he says, so Jesus, uh, the, the the man actually asks him another question. The religious lawyer says, What do you mean? What does it mean to love neighbor? Who is my Neighbor, if you like, what this man was trying to do is to put a border and a boundary around how far should I apply the Torah, the teachings of God, so that I can be justified by God for being a good covenant-keeping Jewish man. If you like, he was, he was walking around and saying, what I want to do is measure out a, a line around what it means for me to delineate who are on the outside and who are on the inside. And I want to know that I'm a good, proper, upstanding Jewish man who can say before God, I have just marked out those who are on the inside that I need to apply this law to, my neighbors. And therefore, I can delineate and say who are on the Outside. Sorry, crew. And so Jesus responds by telling him a story. He says this. 
A Jewish man, it's assumed, the man would have thought he's going to talk about a Jewish man. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's just not uh, uncommon. In fact, if you wanted to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem, you actually went along the Jordan River, which was to the east, and then you climbed up from the lowest city in the world, Jericho, all the way up to Jerusalem. This person was going down. Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits, which was not all too uncommon because it was hill country, and in those particular places, it was very vulnerable. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. I like that. Not fully dead, just half dead. Any Princess Bride people here? Half dead? Not fully. Okay. By chance, a priest came along. If you're too young for that one, you really need to watch it. But by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, if you've heard this story before, you go, I know how this goes. The whole idea is that a priest was someone who was the go-between between humans and God. The priest was on his way to Jerusalem, if you like. And when he saw this man, he's got two things running through his head. Firstly, he's half dead or maybe fully dead. If he touches a dead body, it means when he gets to Jerusalem and he's performing his priestly duties, what he needs to do is go through a week's long ritual cleansing, which means he can't do his priestly duties. So he's already predisposed to moving on. And then the second thing is he, he doesn't know who he is because he's stripped of his clothes. How do I know if he's a foreigner or how do I know he's on the inside group that we've marked out about who I should apply my neighborliness love to and be a good, obedient, Torah-keeping Jewish priest? So he chooses the latter and passes by. A temple assistant, the Levites, the group of people that God had designated out to be the, the people who cared for the temple. The Levites walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side for exactly the same reason. Now, this is the clincher. This is the turning point. Because you can imagine the lawyer then going, well, if you've got to the priest and the... Who's the third person? Is this like one of those jokes? And he says, then a Samaritan. And you could hear, if you like, the audible groan. Samaritan? You're even bringing a Samaritan into this equation? See, Samaritans and Jews, they have a lot of form. 500 years before when the, the Judaites had actually been relocated to Babylon in exile and they returned. We looked at this a few months ago in the book of Nehemiah. When they returned, there was all this opposition for them returning and relocating, rebuilding the city, the temple, everything. Who opposed them? The Samaritans. So the hostility and the poison and the toxicity of relationship between the two, we cannot fathom. This is kind of like Collingwood and Carlton on steroids. Yeah. And so even just mentioning the word Samaritan would have just been this audible. Then a Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt what compassion for him. Samaritans, compassion. He says, the Samaritan man went over to him, put him on his donkey, tended his wounds, put him up in an inn, gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was more than enough, and said, I'll come back and keep paying if there needs to be anything covered for this expenses because I want this man to get well, this indiscriminate, half-dead-bodied man. And then he turns to, and Jesus says, now which of these three would you say was a neighborly person? To the man who was attacked by bandits. Sneaky Jesus, wasn't he? Takes his baseball bat and basically hits out of the ballpark every single idea about this line being drawn about who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Who can I actually apply love and grace and mercy God's Torah to and who I don't have to to because I'm not obliged to? How can he be justified? And Jesus just... He subverts the whole thing. So the man's going, Samaritan man, let me get this right. A Samaritan man actually keeping the Torah. A Samaritan man actually doing a God thing. A Samaritan man, a Samaritan man, a Samaritan man, a Samaritan. Totally messing with his concept of who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And so the man says, couldn't even name the Samaritan. Couldn't even use that word. He says, the one. (laughs) The one. I guess who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said, yeah. You want to be a good covenant-keeping, following, God-focused person? Now go and do the same. So tell me this. The lawyer was asking the question, how far does God's love and grace and mercy extend and to whom should it be restricted in order for me to be okay? And the answer Jesus gives is, if a Samaritan can do it for a compatriot of mine, redefines everything. Put your own word in there for Samaritan. Intellectually challenged by hair color. Driving because of nationality and race. Person in the office who I don't really like, who got the promotion above me. Woman at the school who talks way too much and I want to get kind of connected to her. I know that she's from a different part of town. Kid who has all the trappings but maybe not the things that are really and I've judged, I've judged, I've judged, I've judged, I've judged and I've drawn boundaries all the time. Jesus smashes them out of the ballpark. You see, what I find is that this whole spread out thing hinges on how we see Jesus. See, if I asked you to think about the person that you would least want to sit next to for a dinner party, very soon you'll, beyond the, that person harmed me, the, the prejudices come, don't they? And then we have this conversation in our head which goes something like this. Jesus died for me. But did Jesus die for this person too? I think they did. I think he did. So if Jesus died for this person too, because they're a sinner and they fall short and I'm a sinner and I fall short, then what, what does Jesus want to mess with me when it comes to my understanding of to whom I should give love to and who should I restrict it from? Man's going to come up right now because what I'd like us to do is pause for a moment and reconsider as a community what it means to understand these words of Jesus and how he hits us all out of the ballpark when it comes to our judgmental attitudes. The only thing that I know in this world that changes prejudice is when I encounter mercy, grace, and love that is undeserving for me. And I choose to give it away to someone else who I have defined as being on the outer in order that I might bring them in. Not as a project, but because that's what Jesus fundamentally did for me. It's just that I've always defined myself as being on the inside. Because I believe the right things, open the right book, go to the right church. So I want to create a space here right now where the Holy Spirit might talk to us because he says this. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I don't suppose that all the people who heard that went, oh, do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to be a witness for Jesus? Do I have to be a witness? Do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to? They wanted to. Because their encounter with Jesus was so absolutely inspiring. In him was life and this life was the light of all humankind. And I believe that in my gut. So why wouldn't I want to just live that out for other people to experience too? (laughs) 
Sometimes I don't even have to give words to it. Sometimes I will. He took a sinner like me, welcomed me into his family, dusted me off, filled me with his spirit. Now it's changing my heart and my prejudices and my delineations. And If Jesus is like that, oh, <laughs> that is good news. The creator of this world throws open the doors, redefines the boundaries located in Jesus. He says, come. Repent, turn to me, forgive you, wash you clean, fill you up, send you out. You'll receive power, transforming your heart and your mind, your prejudices and all that stuff. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses. I wonder here in this morning, you need an encounter with God's Holy Spirit to do a work in you might change prejudices mercy flows love's given freely the only way we get that is when we come before the king of kings we ask him afresh and we worship him so do work in me because I judge like I breathe oxygen do work in me Heavenly Father, across this room right now, I would ask that you might be speaking and pouring forth your spirit. For anyone here who wants to encounter you in fresh ways, they might, you might hear their desire, that you might hear their cry, their heart. Would you fill them afresh as they ask for it? Encounters with you transform us from having to to wanting to because. Holy Spirit, come.